Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. The alternative rock boom of the early 90s kind of passed me by. Now, I was only eight when Nevermind came out, but I do remember watching the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit on MTV, and I know there were kids around my age that were into it, especially once I entered middle school and Seattle fashion made its way to my hometown. But that music at the time didn't really catch my interest. No, in fact, when it was my turn to choose the radio station in the car, I would always pick the local oldie station, Fox 97, much to the chagrin of my older sister and to the delight of my baby boomer parents. Oddly, few things make me feel more nostalgic for the early 90s than pop songs from the 50s and 60s. These songs were the soundtrack of my early childhood, and I shunned all other eras of music, especially the current. That all changed for me when I was 13 years old and watched Beck perform Where It's At on top of a bus before the MTV Video Music Awards. My mind was blown. Had I been missing out on this? Is this what modern music can be? So 96 was the year it all changed for me, when I got a cassette copy of Odelay and became obsessed with music. I became all about the current and turned my back on oldies radio. That was now my parents' music. Eventually, my obsession led me to wanting to start a band. So when I was 14, I began taking guitar lessons at Noonan Music, the local musical instrument store. Now, Noonan Music played a pivotal role in my life as a teenager. You know, all teenagers need cool, older individuals in their life to introduce them to art that will blow their minds. And I had just that at Noonan Music. And one particular employee of Noonan Music that had a profound effect on me as a music listener is a guy named Jeremy Spake. Jeremy was my hero. He was five or six years older than me, knew all about indie rock, and was in a cool band called Flux Capacitor. I mean... They actually played shows in Atlanta and had their own webpage. Now, one of the great features of the mid to late 90s indie band webpage was the links section. On the links page, indie bands would often put links to other bands they were friends with, and one could really go down a rabbit hole discovering new music this way. Flutz Capacitor had played a show with the Champagne Urbana indie pop band Woofy. So, when I went to Wolfie's webpage and eventually made my way to their link section, I discovered the Athens, Georgia-based indie label, Kindercore Records. Kindercore quickly became my label. What Sub Pop and Matador meant to teens in the early 90s is essentially what Kindercore meant to me. It became my Matador. Anything the label released, I knew it had to be good. It was also pretty amazing knowing that this label was based in the same state in which I lived. Athens became a magical place in my mind. I quickly became enchanted with all things related to Athens, especially the psychedelic pop of the Elephant Six Collective. And one of the reasons I fell so hard for Kindercore and Athens, Georgia, was that many of the bands included elements of 60s pop music, the music that I still secretly loved. Now, this probably doesn't sound that revolutionary, but as a 16-year-old, it blew my mind. 
It was okay to like indie rock and oldies at the same time. Hell, you could even combine the two. And my favorite kindercore band that did just this was Kincaid. I can remember ordering their second record, Super Hawaii, directly from Kindercore Records. And when it arrived at my house, along with a Kindercore sticker, which I promptly put on the back of my 74 Super Beetle, I put the record on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. Greg Harmelink, uh, I sang, played guitar. I played the out-of-tune trumpet on the record. Um, and I did a lot of the, a lot of the recording. You did all the recording, didn't you? No, Dan did some of the recording, too. Mm-hmm. I'm Ryan Lewis, and I played drums in Kincaid, and um, I I think that was all I did on the record. I don't remember, but um, but yeah, I definitely played drums on it. I remember that, and, and sang some backup. I'm Dan. I played guitar and apparently recorded some of it. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Sean. I played a bunch of keyboard based instruments and sang sometimes uh, backing vocals that were really hard to listen to today when I revisited <laughs> the album. Greg Harmelink and Dane Geller, both natives of Wisconsin, formed Kincaid in Athens, Georgia. And like the many transients that become permanent residents of this Georgia town, the members of the band initially moved to Athens to attend the University of Georgia. Yeah, I guess I was probably the first person in Athens. So I came down uh, for college in the 90s. I guess we got to give a shout out to Christy Stone, who was my girlfriend in high school, who was from Atlanta, and her parents split up, and her mom moved to Wisconsin with her new husband. Uh, Christy hated Wisconsin and was ready to get out of there as soon as we graduated, and I wanted to go anywhere but Wisconsin, so I was on board. And uh, I probably should have gone to Georgia Tech. I got into Georgia Tech, and I'm an engineer. But I did not like Atlanta at that time. I was just not feeling it. So uh, her stepmom brought us to UGA because she was alumni. And I literally, I remember it to this day, I got out of the car at O House, which is one of our dorms. I put my foot on the ground, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to study here or what I'm going to do here, but I'm moving here. And... um, Greg came down to visit me one day with our mutual friend, Mark Malman, who also still makes music to this day and just finished a really great book. And um, he brought Greg down. And Greg and I were, like, friends in, in high school, but I wouldn't say we were, like, buddies, right? Like, we were, like, acquaintances in high school. And then Greg said, I think I'm going to move down here. And I said, well, that'd be great. We could move in together. And we really became great friends when Greg actually moved down here, even though we were in high school together. That story is kind of off, but I'll, I'll <laughs> give my side of the story of how I ended up in Athens. So I was, uh, we were in a, a all-ages club up in Wisconsin. I was still living in Wisconsin. This and then is a Dan, very different story. Yes. And, and Dan uh, came, uh, I saw him there, like he said, we were acquaintances. But then he started talking about Athens and how he got to, like, just roadie for the Pixies and for, like, all these <laughs> stories that just sounded amazing to me. So I, I had to, like, live somewhere for a year 
And so I was like, well, I'll go check out. Uh, so then the rest of the story kind of gets the same. But then Mark Malm and I <laughs> go and, and visit Dan in his dorm and lots of crazy stories there. But yeah, it, it all started with him talking about, for, for me, starting about um, talking about the roading for the, the Pixies. Did that really happen or is that a fake memory? He was working the door, wasn't he? He was working the door, right? Well, I mean, I was, like, you know, I was, like... uh, Not on a tour, but at a show. Yeah, so I was supposed to live here for one year, and now it's, like, 25 years later, and I'm still (laughs) here. I thought yours was Aria-related, but mine, I I went to visit a girlfriend that I was dating uh, senior year of high school, and she was going to Clemson. She was a freshman, and there was nothing to do in Clemson because it's incredibly boring. I was from Maryland, by the way. I forgot to mention that. And, uh we were looking at a map and I was like, Oh, Athens, that's where I am from. Let's go see that place. And so we drove over here and, uh, and same exact thing as Dan. As soon as I got out of the car downtown, right in the middle of downtown and saw the kiosks around with the flyers, I was like, yeah, this is where I live. And then I was like, is there a college here? And everyone's like, turn around, you idiot. (laughs) It's right behind you. So anyway, that's how I got here. Harma Lincoln Geller, along with bassist Pat Valentine, formed Kincaid and began playing shows around Athens. Initially playing with a different drummer, the band eventually brings in their friend Ryan Lewis to play drums. There is an early incarnation of Kincaid um, that was without Ryan. Uh, we had a rock different and roll Ryan. drummer. Uh, yeah, we had a different Ryan. And, um, and so we were, we were quite different. You guys got irritated because you wanted somebody who played less. And I didn't actually play drums, but I had a drum set. And I was like, I'll just play like three drums and that'll be fine. And yeah. Like, that sounds great. So. At the time, we were really into like the band low. And um, then the drummer at the time was like, I want to talk to you guys about a, uh, getting a double kick pedal. And we we're like, <laughs> oh. And you're like, I want to talk to you about how we have a new drummer now. <laughs> it's that annoying guy that's always in front of all of our shows looking at the drum set going, what am I going to be the drummer? Because I was going to see you guys before I was in the band. Like, I would see every show. Like, I had got, become friends with Dan and, and was, like, there right in the front. Uh, yeah, I think I have a video of us playing where you're in the front. So, but really? I, I, yeah, yeah. Athens has always maintained one of the more consistent American music communities. But starting in the mid-90s, the classic city would boast an exceptionally strong scene. Olivia Tremor Control, yeah. Plus all there was there was you know, there were all the Elephant Six bands, like all of them and Elf Power and stuff, and then sort of involves like the indie pop bands that like Kincaid and Gritty Kitty and the Mendoza line and Masters of the Hemisphere and um, Montreal. So that, yeah, I mean that's what but it was exciting. It was a time when like everyone was in each other's bands, everyone playing on each other's records and stuff and making records, which was exciting. I think And a lot of people were going to shows too. I think that's something yeah. that's really important to point out is that everybody was supporting each other's bands. So when you would play on a Tuesday night you'd have a hundred people there because everybody yeah. was in the band and everybody was going to see everybody else's band. Um you and went out see every night being over and over again, yeah. But you'd yeah. also be like, oh, hey, come get on stage with me because you're in the audience every time we play or whatever. I was the boring one in the band that always went home after the show. So I'll say probably the coolest thing that Kincaid was a part of was that that Halloween house show um, in uh, what in Normal Town, I guess, with Neutral Milk Hotel. And who else played that? Was it Elf Power? Uh, wasn't it, it of Montreal, YouTube. too? It could have been. Yeah, it was, it's on YouTube. It was in somebody's basement. We all dressed up like um, 
classic Halloween costumes. So, like, I think somebody was a ghost. Damn, were you a ghost with a sheet? Sounds about right. With two holes cut out or something. And, and that was that was when, like, and another shout-out that, you know, R.E.M., like, Michael Stipe lived in town, you know, was here all the time at the time, and he was out at shows constantly. And that show was, I mean, you know, not only was it exciting to be a part of this crazy, like, super crowded basement house show, but um, he brought Peter back to the show that night, which was pretty crazy. Um, so you have good memories of that show, huh? Why do you have terrible memories of it? We 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 stopped after like two and a half songs, and Pat walked home. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happened? We 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 stopped we stopped mid song. Um, I don't really. I think. We, we were at a special moment of a time of the band where we got on each other's nerves a little oh, bit more. Of all the because I always think, like, of all the times to get frustrated at, at, at each other and stop mm. mid-song, that was not the show to do it at. So. That's so funny. I did not remember that at all. I did remember something <laughs> negative, like, hovering over that night. I couldn't remember wow. what it was. That's it. Man. But I remember you you got a like you got a pair of boots from Michael Stipe or shoes or something like that. Yeah, he brought me and a I, pair of boots, which probably made me not really concerned about anything else that night. You're, you're <laughs> you just like that was a great show. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a famous person brought me a present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, but it was that was that kind of night. I mean, okay, so Kincaid's bad. Uh, internal bad vibes aside at that moment i think like that was pretty indicative of like a lot of fun crazy a lot of house of shows with a bunch of bands on the bill you know um a lot of just like musical energy it was an exciting time here around 96 geller and lewis start Kindercore records the label would play a pivotal role in supporting and promoting the local scene side note Kindercore no longer functions as a label but in the fall of 2017, Geller and Lewis opened Kindercore Vinyl, Georgia's only vinyl record pressing plant, and one of only a handful operating in the United States. I mean, the label started because of Kincaid, really. It started because we, um, Kincaid was recording some songs right when I joined the band, and we were going to put them out as a 7-inch, and... Um, I don't know, Dan, I mean, I guess you and I just sort of naturally gravitated towards handling doing it, I guess. I don't really remember how that part of it happened, but we made up a fake name for a record label to put on the record. Um, actually, wait, you know what? That's not exactly how it happened. Yeah, we, we made the tapes first. We st- well, no. Oh, we, yeah. We started to make the record. The record we sent to the record pressing plant first. But they kept messing up the cut of the record. They kept getting it wrong, and we kept rejecting the test pressing. So during the time that it took for them to get that actually finished and get it and be able to make it, we had already Dan and I had been at a Butter Glory show, a band on Merge, and we're looking around and saw all of our friends that were in bands, and we were like, "Why don't we put out a compilation? We should make a tape of all of our friends." And we did, and so we wound up in the time that it took. <laughs> the Kincaid 7-inch to actually be made correctly. We wound up coming up with the idea, getting all the songs, having everyone record them, and putting out a cassette and selling it out within a week before the 7-inch ever even came out. But technically, the cassette was number two 
and Kinder Corn number one is the Kincaid seven inch. No. Now, Ryan, let me ask you, can you imagine a record company performing that badly at pressing vinyl records, having such poor quality service from a record, record pressing plant? You know what I could imagine is someone someone doing that and then someone who was in a band becoming so frustrated with it that they, 25 years later, decided to open their own. <laughs> that, that's, it was a building frustration that started with the Kincaid 7-inch and went all the way through every release we ever did. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so opened our own pressing plant because, you know, anyway. <laughs> On a clean white wall In a restroom in a restaurant I took a band from a waitress And wrote on the wall Nobody's been here On an empty stomach Recorded between 96 and 97, Kincaid released their debut record, Good Citizen of the Month on Kindercore. Side note, in high school I worked at Atlanta Bread Company and was listening to it while washing dishes in the back. I forgot it when my shift was over and the next day someone had taken it and it really bummed me out. I couldn't replace it because it was out of print. My dad eventually found the album on eMusic, an mp3 form for me, and burned me a copy, which I think is probably the first burned CD I ever owned. To this day, my dad will still talk about how much he loves Good Citizen of the Month's opening track, Nobody's Been Here. Like, half of the songs were recorded by um, the, the guys from Mariner 9 at Ryan's uh, house. Um, and and then half of the songs were recorded at Ryan's, um, what was it, your father-in-law so, or stepdad? Yeah, it was my stepdad's log cabin. In the woods, up in um, in Maryland, which yeah, and yeah, we had this grand idea that we were gonna like go on a retreat and make a record, and we did a lot of retreating, but not much making a record. I I don't know, I, I liked it. Um, so oh, it was great. No, I mean it was so much fun. I mean retreating, I mean like just dicking around and having fun. You know, we were yeah, we shot a lot of BB guns and yeah, <laughs> and uh, yes, lots of spiders, um, mm. lots of lots of crickets. The we crickets had to avoid that lots. the recording. Yes, sir. Which which is charming now. Um, yeah. But yeah, we wrote a lot of the songs in the cabin, if I recall correctly. Um, and then some of this stuff was even earlier, where we had done um, like that. Nobody's been here. We did some of that in the original Cool Jets Baby um, on four track, and so Your that, it was mixed track, right? On cassette four track, absolutely. Yeah. The stuff done by the Mariner 9 guys was, I think, 8-track reel-to-reel. And then, yeah. um, and then I, at the, between that and doing the second half of it is when I, I think I quit my job or, and decided I wanted to record other bands, and I bought a Tascam DA38 and, like, a Mackie 1604, just mixer. Um, uh, so we did a lot of uh, Good Citizen on that and uh, Super Hawaii, too. To recreate the sounds of the record live, Sean Rawls of the Kindercore band The Masters of the Hemisphere joins Kincaid as a keyboardist. Sean joined after Good Citizen, yeah. right? Yeah. Because Greg put a bunch of keyboard parts on that album, and so yeah. they wanted somebody to play keyboards, and they were yes. like, they're like, you know, one finger keyboard parts, and I, I said I could do it. I don't know how or why I was I joined the band, but it was to play those keyboard parts. You know, yeah. you were around, and we were like, hey, we wanted to sound like the record, you know? And we had that, um, 
we had like a uh, Greg. Didn't you have like a like a Yamaha or Casio keyboard like a that had the organ tone on it, and then we used that Moog that I had. Yeah, I think I, I think I had an old Alesis keyboard. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm looking at it right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's so if you guys want to get back together. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But yeah, I think, you know, yeah, you joined and then, but then once we had you, I think Sean being in the band, I mean, I don't know, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that Sean being in the band was a big influence for how Super Y had so much more instrumentation on it. It was like, now we have somebody that can do this stuff. And then you started doing stuff that we didn't have on Good Citizen, like, like your glockenspiel and when you got that stylophone and that stuff. That was like, oh, okay, this is a whole... Now we can write songs that have totally different kinds of things going on. With Rawls' talents as a multi-instrumentalist, as well as other factors being a large influence, the sound of Kincaid begins to change. Still present was the contemporary indie rock guitar interplay between Geller and Harmalink, but many of the new songs began to borrow elements from the past. I remember at the time Fox 97 was the radio station that was like the oldie station that was on. Back when it was a real oldie station, it played songs from the 50s and 60s, and that was it. And they didn't play like crappy, you know, whatever from the 70s and, and 80s. So, And then they just stopped being a radio station. But back when they were really great around that time, I know I was listening to it all the time. I remember the big thing that we talked about, all of us, you, Dan, Greg, and I, was um, we, we, were, we were talking about how everyone would say that the Athens bands were very, like, oh, the Olivia Turner girls like the Beatles, or oh, whatever, you know, and it was like, we were like Herman's Hermits, or Dave Clark's Five, Dave Clark Five, or like the bands that were like really good pop bands that had these really cool orchestrated pop songs, but they were not like over the top or trying to be super whatever, but then the other, the cool thing about it was always Greg's lyrics were incredibly depressing often. <laughs> so, they, so, so it took that weird thing where you had like this super happy bop, bop, bop music with these lyrics that were like, whoa, holy crap, once you started listening yeah. to them, you know. I it, think does it seem like the Elephant System was really psych-based and we were not psychedelic at all? No. Uh, and then you have a guitar interplay from Dan and Greg that, to me, like, sounds like a little, like, with a hint of emo or something, like an emo. Yeah, there was filter. some emo influence. We grew up, Greg and I yeah. grew up with Baby Von Bolin from The Promise Ring. And I think whatever influenced him influenced us, too. And the original yeah. incarnation of Kincaid before Ryan got in it was headed to being an emo band, I think. When I look back, I think that's what we were, really. It was closer oh, yeah. to that, yeah. The movie that thing you do right wasn't that a big influence? Yes, oh, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, yes, that's right. We, that thing you do came out right after we started the label, and they had the label in it and the band and everything. And yeah, didn't we even? Did we even? We covered it. Um, no, no, we had a viewing party. <laughs> but didn't we all we all watched it together at my house on River Chase? And, yeah. um, that's amazing. As a, as a band, and I think it, it it we took a turn. So yeah, it really hooked us. So if you if you get take that thing you do and add emo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but also, hey, P.S. Wait a minute. It's important to clarify that by emo you mean like the old person's definition of emo, not like what people call emo now. Yeah. Like you're not talking about like AFI or um, <laughs> My Chemical Romance or whatever. You're talking about yeah, like yeah. 
We used Kincaid used to play with the Promise String every time they played in Georgia, even when it was wildly inappropriate. I remember playing with them a couple of times where it was like in Atlanta or something. And it was like, man, I don't think these people like us. Um, <laughs> but the Promise String really liked us, so they wanted us to keep playing with them. So, I, yeah, I remember that show in Atlanta, and I was like, we were opening for them, and there, I was like, wow, there's a lot of people watching us and then i realized it was just all the people who couldn't sit outside you know right? <laughs> there was no room outside they had filled the entire outdoors <laughs> you didn't like the rest of the world yeah yep, exactly the entire rest of the world as harmalink started work on the songs that would eventually make up much of super hawaii the lyrical content of many of these new songs begins to form a loose concept. I wrote most of the lyrics. I started probably most of the songs, but we all wrote the songs. Yeah, so like half, over half the songs are like, they follow a theme of like the end of the world and the depressing side. And and then the yeah. other ones like Holiday, holiday Parade don't, don't quite fit. So. We should probably talk about the where the dumb concept came from, that speedboat that we passed on tour. This all, I mean, the entire Super Hawaii thing was like an inside joke that started out of our going, we were on our way to like Tennessee sure. or Kentucky or something. And we're on a, tour somewhere. And, uh, and, a, and a truck drove, or a car drove by with a trailer with a speedboat that said Super Hawaii on it. And we all started talking about the Hawaiian islands forming into one Super Hawaii, one giant island. And what yeah. make, make that happen and that it became that the it started raining and it never stopped raining and then the earth was all underwater except for the hawaiian islands that were one giant island and everybody in the rest of the world drowned and so there are lyrics in song in some of the songs that are just straight up about that right yes like, absolutely it was, yeah ring. some of those songs came straight out of our like ridiculous riffing on that joke yes some of, I, I imagine some of the lyrics were written on that van ride yeah but then some of them are really old you know i remember um like benjamin uh was written that's about written from benjamin franklin's will i don't know if you know this sean but we used to call that the master's song did you know that i forgot about that because we thought we were doing that in the style of the masters you know nobody else remembers that but uh, i remember that no 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 i do yeah and um so yeah, some of them are are, are older, and then uh, then a lot of them were written around that. It might have been on the Good Citizen tour, and then some songs I think we recorded kind of in the studio. We wrote them there, and then like never played them. Like I don't did we ever play Alaska? Uh, I don't know that we did. Yeah, the majority of Super Hawaii is recorded in Harmalink's garage in Athens, with other parts being recorded by Geller in various locations throughout Athens. On the Kindercore website upon the release of the record, it stated that Super Hawaii was recorded in Hawaii at the same house used for the eighth season of the MTV reality series, The Real World, a lie they would sometimes continue to spread in interviews, and, being an impressionable 16-year-old, 
I did believe that this was true. Yeah, I couldn't be there because like I like just flew in for the show and flew home like an idiot. That's right. So, but then the, whoever was doing the interview asked the band, so like, so what was it like recording, you know, at the Real World House or in Hawaii? And the way you told the story before is you all just looked at each other for a second, like quietly, like were you going to sell the lie? Oh or, yeah, yeah. You know, and that that you just went with the lie, and you ended up talking about spelunking. So. Wow, I I think I do remember it, that happening. Was Pat was still there? I remember that, and I think Pat. Talked I remember about spelunking. that. <laughs> it was great to record in Hawaii at the Real World House. I yeah, that personally, that's what that's the real answer. Yeah, so. yeah, spelunking was Pat's favorite part. No. Um, so most of Super Hawaii was recorded in my garage, which I like. <laughs> Cut in half. My let me do that. Um, that was really was awesome. exciting when you did that. That was like a very exciting thing. I thought. Yeah, I was excited. And, We're gonna make a record now. You know. Yeah, and, and a bunch of the early kind of adjacent bands recorded there, and it was just it was fun. And so I would say most of the record was recorded there. And then what Dan doesn't remember was there was some kind of auxiliary parts like by Heather McIntosh and. Josh, right? Yeah, and, Josh McKay. And I think he, that's where we were in between doing stuff on, like, traditional recorders. It was a digital recorder. Um, but we would dump stuff to his computer, and he would then do some stuff, like, add some tracks um, at different locations. Like, where did Dan record you, Sean? Bedroom. In his apartment near Ember's Lounge. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I remember, like, the reason Dan had to record everybody instead of Greg is because Greg was playing that trumpet <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. So that apartment that we lived in where you recorded, Sean, Nene from Real Housewives of Atlanta, that's where she grew up, was in that apartment complex. So kind of like the real world. It's exactly like the real world. And it proves that we were telling the truth all along. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really shocked that I recorded some of it, which I'm, I'm pretty proud of. Because, I, I mean, when you think about how we were doing that, piecing it together from all those different formats. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Right, right as computers were becoming a viable option. And I was using a laptop before they were really a viable option. Like, I had this thing rigged together with the first USB port, I think, that was ever made and the first USB card that they ever had. And that's what I was, like, recording with. And it's amazing that it sounds that good. I think sort of it's interesting how, like, Greg, you were talking about how on the first record it was, like, the four-track and then the eight-track reel-to-reel and then there was that switch to digital and then Super Hawaii was digital and then the... the But it was, like, a digital, like... I don't know what you call that, but like it was a mix because we we went from the yeah we were we we recorded the main tracks on the DA thirty eight, but then yeah. we'd dump it the computer and then add extra stuff. Right, and then so it like bled into that computer thing, and Dan, you were doing that on a laptop, which like you said at the time, like people were doing that on towers, not laptops. Um, and then that mix, yeah. So it was it was it's I think that's another interesting thing about the record is just sort of how all those recording techniques and. All that came through. According to the members of the band, recording for Super Hawaii took longer than expected. It was also during this time that Kindercore starts to get notice outside of their home base of Athens within the independent music scene. With the hopes of growing their label, Geller and Lewis moved Kindercore to New York. Started to set aside time 
I think it started like we did it intentionally, right? And then it just sort of t- went on. It yeah, it, it, right? it, t- it took forever. You guys went to, did you move to Brooklyn in yeah. the middle of it? Yeah. Um, so that kind of slowed things down. But I think I was really dragging things. I a trumpet. He wanted to leave. He wouldn't stop playing the trumpet. So I decided to go to New York. Yeah, I spent a lot of time tuning that trumpet, and it just it, it took a while. <laughs> And um, but I think I need but, to interject here about the trumpet, Greg. The, the trumpet came from my friend Brian Schechterly, who is still a friend of mine. And whenever I see him, he still asks me where the fuck his trumpet is. So it, it's, just so you it's know, pretty. Still after it. It's pretty moldy right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do plan on like shipping it to him one day. Um, Brian Shockley also, I guess we need to say, was one of the original owners of Kindercore. So there you yeah, go. he helped us get it started in the beginning. <clears throat> but yeah. yeah, I think it took a long time. At the, I remember I was finishing school, um, working full time, and trying to do the recording at the. You know, it was just eking out any hours we I had to do it. I think, mm-hmm. and I was playing a lot of trumpet. I don't really remember making it. Unfortunately, but uh, I don't. I mean, you were there for like cool. the long day session that we were because you didn't track any of it with us. I don't think. I think yeah. you, yeah, you were in class. Oh, you didn't. Honestly. Oh, I'm pretty sure that you. So were that school. that makes sense because we re- we recorded like the guitar, bass, drums, mm-hmm. um, all on the eight track, and then all the kind of extra stuff came later. I think. Yeah, because we did all the guitar, bass, and drums before Dan and I left. Like, I think at some point, maybe we even knew that we were moving, or I was moving. And it was like, let's just go ahead and finish all this stuff. And so we did all that stuff live. But in the end, they were able to make a record. Super Hawaii opens with Solid Jackson and introduces the new sounds of Kincaid. It's a song that would fit nicely on any Loving Spoonful or Turtles LP. The highlight of this track is the nice rolling piano present throughout the song. Yeah, that's my sister-in-law, Carolyn Walsh, and yeah, she she's a fantastic singer and piano player, and she was gave us that the kind of nice rolling feel to it so yeah that was yeah like, that was her i think i remember you wrote that song and it was like oh man the song needs to have this like big piano but then it was like yeah where nobody can none of us can do that and right. then <laughs> you, you found someone who could actually play piano and you 
That was a real piano too, right? Didn't you go somewhere it was and record a real piano? For real, yeah, exactly. It was like for real piano, yeah. One of the things that I was most proud of with Super Hawaii was the fact that, like, and you know, we didn't use like string synths on, you know, on keyboards or whatever. Like, we actually got people to play strings, got people to play, got Greg to play that trumpet over and over. But, uh, but yeah, so I remember that being being really excited about that song. Was that one of the first of those new round of songs you wrote, Greg? Because I feel like that song was maybe written after like, we watched that like thing. Like maybe did. the same night of watching that thing you do. I could see that. So yeah, I think it had a lot to do with um, the transition of, of me moving to Wisconsin and and uh, and what was kind of happening to my other friends and where they were going on to. Very non-specific. Uh, but I remember being really life. excited that the that it was like solid comma Jackson. I remember us talking about that a lot. Yeah. I re- and I don't, re- do you remember how we got that name? I, I don't know. If it, I mean, obviously it's like solid Jackson. Like somebody must've said that, but obviously none of us said that. So maybe it was in a movie or something that we saw. I don't know. Maybe it was in that I, do. It could have been. <laughs> that was that thing they did. That said solid yeah. Jackson. But this does bring up one thing about Kincaid that I think we need to mention which, as I'm staring at the Spotify screen right now, is somewhat intact. We were really into punctuation and capitalization and lack thereof. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we, like, insisted that our name was Kincaid with a lowercase k and a period. Yeah. Although Spotify does not adhere to that. And I that was complicated. I know yeah. as, Once... the, as the you know curator of the Kindercore catalog, I need to take care of this. But every song on that record on Spotify is lowercase. So that's interesting. Yeah, huh. I mean, that was... Digit, once we entered the digital realm, it was really hard. To, like once the world entered that, it was hard for that to continue. But having done, I helped. I mean, I did the design for Super Hawaii record cover and did all of our most of our flyers or whatever. And then Chris Billheimer, um and I worked on the cover for Good Citizen of the Month. I just remember I was the one that was frequently typing the name Kincaid and having to insist to people and also figure out how in band bios to have a period in the word that didn't end a sentence. Um, there were a lot of complicated times writing things for Kindercore where my desire to keep the period in Kincaid, but also use it in a sentence, became very complicated. Following Solid Jackson is the title track. beach party vibe and catchy sing-along chorus. It is also the first song to introduce the record's loose end-of-the-world concept. That was one of our more popular songs that we would play at shows. Um, Which is really fun. And we'd always have people sing along. One thing I remember about that song is at the end, or no, maybe it's near the near the end and kind of the break, where there's uh, we put in recordings of a spelling bee Um in the middle of it where it's like, mm-hmm. I, I don't even remember what word they're saying. Um, but there's one time where Dan, you wrote me like a decade after that. Um, I don't know if you remember this at all, but you're like, were you saying my name at the end of that record? <laughs> 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 like it sounded a little bit like me saying, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really like late because it doesn't sound like your name at all, you know. <laughs> but that's amazing. But that's yeah, where you know when I think I was actually bringing my recording equipment to a TV to just record it. Um, um, you know, like, I, it, I also it, think it, like. Dan was always a big proponent. I mean, we all were, but Dan was the biggest proponent probably of like the non word uh, singing parts, like the bop, bop, super wop, bop part um, that had been, you know, bops and things like that had been in other songs that we'd done. But I feel like that's sort of the ultimate example of that. Yes. The, Complete indulgence well, of that. Yeah. The bop, bop, super wop, bop, super wop, bop, super Hawaii all the time. You can't go wrong with that. I mean, it's good stuff. Was 2012 mentioned in Super Hawaii, too? I feel like that was the year. Well, I think we came up with that as part of the whole thing, right? Like, that was... Yeah. It was going to be in 2012, because in 1996, that year was never going to happen, right? Yeah, it was so far in the future. So far in the future that there was no chance that year would ever happen. And so, of course, that was the year the world was going to end. Uh, and we didn't know about the Mayan calendar thing. It was just kind of a coincidence. And so I don't remember which song came, which of the 2012 songs uh, came first, but that might have been the first one. Um, I, mean, I definitely remember we came up with the 2012 thing, like on that tour while we were talking about the Super Y. Like that was the year that was going to happen. So I think because that comes up in a couple of songs. Parachutes is a slow and beautiful number, and the first of the record, to employ a string section. musicians that contributed strings to this song, and others on the record, was celloist Heather McIntosh, who at the time was in the Kindercore band Japan Cakes, as well as various Elephant Six projects, and has gone on to have a wide-ranging career of playing with the likes of Gnarls Barkley and Little Wayne to composing scores for film. I remember this one always made me real sad when we played it. Yeah, I remember being like, this song like whatever greg was able to do with the recording of this song like the writing of it but also just bringing together all of the parts i just remember this being the first song that i like took and like played for people endlessly like oh my god i can't believe what we're working on right now this is so exciting 
Like, I just remember thinking that, like, that song was like, oh, wow, we've we've graduated now, you know. Kind of emo. Well, yeah, I mean, I will also say, I don't know if you guys were, I, I can only speak for myself in this, but I know, I mean, Pet Sounds is one of my favorite albums of all time, but I mean, I was particularly obsessed with that record around that time. Like, I remember I used to, like, go to bed listening to it. Um, like, I was just really into that record, and so I remember the fact that we had recorded a song that had like string parts and the the glockenspiel and all these other things going on in it it just felt like a real accomplishment it was really exciting yeah i think dan that's one where you went and recorded other people on cello though on it right (laughs) well you hilarious i did that (laughs) you recorded the violins that are the viola greg oh did i yeah, like Maura Johnson, um, friend from New York, came down and she came over to your garage and recorded the, I think, all of the viola parts on that. I think that Dan must have recorded um, okay. Okay. cello, Heather McIntosh on cello afterwards. But yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you did. Well, and at, I think at the time it was pretty much just you and I and her like kind of making up melody parts. I don't... I mean, like those string parts weren't written out, right? No, no. I mean, I think it was just oh, okay. Just well, going like, bah, bah, you know. I was then, about to just give all this great credit to to Dan, but I guess I owe it, it to myself. Yeah. <laughs> that that song to me was really like, I yeah, that song has a special place in my heart. I want to say that I had a tape player, you know, I didn't have a CD player in the car at the time, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's when I had a CD, I think I had a CD burner then, because I was the guy in town that had burned CDs for people. But I remember listening to Parachute on on, um, a tape deck in my car on the way to Mm -hmm. Harris Teeter, and uh, and, uh, yeah, just that, that did feel different than the other songs we worked on. I remember taking it to people's houses on a cassette, like we had, I think, I feel like you had these clear cassettes with like a silver inside. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, we had these cassettes and I remember taking to people's houses and being like, listen to the song. Like, cause we were all playing songs for each. That was another part of that time in this town where everyone was playing songs for each other all the time. Depressing lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What I remember of it is like the general idea of like having a backup plan and the backup plan kills you. <laughs> the, oh, ter- the parachute <laughs> broke it. It caught you in the tree, right, and broke your neck. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that that, that, that was the that was the essence of it. So, yeah. but hey, I'm still here. So you are a parachute. <laughs> it tried. Yeah, it, it it worked. So my backup plan worked just fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
continuing the end of the world concept is the song California 2012, which, like many of the related songs, is musically upbeat but lyrically downbeat. Cali 2012 is good because it's kind of like the only like new wave type of song in there. I was going to say that. I remember Dan being really excited about that song. That was my favorite one, yeah. And I yeah, think I actually used delay on that, and I don't use, I didn't really use pedals in this band. I had, I had, I had like Greg's delay pedal, I think, on this. Yeah, I remember that being like, in my mind, it was uh, like, I really love that song too, but I always remembered it being exciting because it was like, that was like Dan's song. Like, whenever we played that, you got really excited. You bounced extra high. And I think also, this is probably a song where if you said we weren't going to play it that night, I would get really mad at everyone and probably be a jerk. So. Maybe we didn't. Maybe that's what happened. That's what Pat left me. Yep. Maybe that's what happened. <laughs> that famous um, Halloween night. Yeah, no, I remember really, really thinking that that song was really cool, like really fun. I Like Sean, you said, like it being a new wave song, like it's it with everything else, but like it had this really cool vibe that was different. I remember like uh, this is a rare song because I think it's maybe the only song or maybe one of two songs that has acoustic on it. I think that maybe some 12 string. Um, working on it, and uh, and it's the only song to use our novelty fortune teller ball um, that we would bring around on tour uh, that would say things like, you're in for a nasty surprise. I don't remember what it... <laughs> Do you remember that, guys? Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't know how I don't remember that. It, it was an actual instrument we would bring to shows, but it was like this... It was this Silver Sphere, um, so there's some kind of robotic talking in it somewhere. And uh, do you remember that, Sean? Because I thought you had to play the the fortune teller novelty. Oh, that you, ball, yeah. You vaguely remember it? Yeah, I mean, like it comes up with a fortune, but you press the button and it'll say what the fortune is. Instead oh, of it. I think maybe I remember and that. And like Greg at shows would, would ask it a question and then, I don't know, play I, it and everybody would be laughing and then he <laughs> takes out his trumpet and everybody would be laughing. Seventy-five <laughs> percent of that story was true. Kiskasay is a 60s pop indebted song that prominently features accordion. And though musically it doesn't share much with the new wave vibe of California 2012, it does take its title from the lyrics of Psycho Killer by original new wavers, the Talking Heads. I don't think I even know, knew what it was from. I just knew it was from the Talking Heads song. And um, <laughs> so I, I would just whisper it at the end of the song. And, uh, <laughs> right. Oh, that's right. It wasn't in the rest of the song, was it? No. <laughs> it was just, just the end. But if you turned it, you'd be like, 
<laughs> yeah, if you if you turn it up, you know, at the end, you'll just hear a, a gentle whispering of it, mm. with me having no clue what I'm saying. So, <laughs> but that was another one. In I remember that one when that was written, kind of following in the similar thing with um, Solid Jackson too, like yes. it being that having that sort of like um, that sixties beat bounce or whatever. I remember those those songs being exciting because it was like a new thing for drumming for a drummer who didn't know how to play drums. I remember that one being really fun when we started playing it live too. Absolutely. Uh, this one has a lot of accordion on it. So that's one thing we didn't have. Oh really yeah. I forgot about that. And it was your accordion, right, Dan? Yeah. It was mine. You played it when you were a kid because you were like, man, someday I'm going to be weird out. Right. Yep, that was my goal. Everybody, <laughs> everybody in Wisconsin wants to be weird out. <laughs> that's one of my earlier memories of, of Dan Geller is we were, um, it was back in Wisconsin. We were both in high school, and uh, I think you played accordion in uh, was it an REM cover band? A tangent Dream? <laughs> no, we didn't. We didn't do. We weren't a cover band, but we played a lot of band songs by the band The Church. Remember The Church? Oh, weird. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah, it was Ooh. a really a new wave band, and they were actually not bad. So you know, we weren't that bad, I guess. But anyway. That's <laughs> In that, in now, did you play that talent show that um, that I'm remembering, or is that a? Yeah, we just... I think the thing that you're remembering is that I was a huge fan of Greg's band. They were they were an actual good band. They were like they were very good. They were well, like had been around a while. And my band that formed like on a whim one night got into the talent show, and Greg's band did not get in. You kind of took that to heart. That that really pissed you off, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I I remember that, and I think it was also when. Uh, the Scud missiles were launched to start the Iraq war that yes. happened oh the same God, night. Yes. So it was a really bummer. <laughs> it, was a, it was really impacted history. Yeah, I don't know how we went from the accordion to Scud missiles. But Sean played the accordion. Like, I mean, that was, I think, one of the things that was most exciting about having Sean in the band was it was like we had somebody who was like excited and we were all young, but you were a little bit younger than us. And it was like, we could just be like, hey, why don't you try this instrument? And you were like, okay. And then <laughs> you did it. Originally released on Kincaid's debut 7-inch, plot number 36 is re-recorded for Super Hawaii. And for the most part, the newer version stays true to the original, except for the increase in fidelity and the added addition of trumpet and glockenspiel. I wanted to record a bunch of songs, uh, all based on bad sitcom plots, and uh, so like, this was. <laughs> so one this of my was, favorite you know, like, this was like the Brady Bunch, you know, like you know, getting angry at each other, um, separating the room. I think it might have happened on the excellent show Perfect Strangers as well. 
I feel like it um, happened. I feel like I remember you talking about it happening on the Odd Couple too, but maybe it, it maybe everybody would read into the lyrics and think it was my wife and I having problems, or even Dan、oh, and I have、right. having problems because we're roommates. And so, I forgot about that. But no, it was about Jan, and you know,、yeah. um, I think that's a good example of what I liked about Dan and I's.、Uh, Guitar interplay of what we were doing. So yeah, and that throws、yeah. back to that earlier because it was an earlier song. So yeah, was that Glockenspiel maybe on that? Feels like maybe it was. Maybe Th- that's an example of、um, there's some songs we kind of overdid, and that there's some songs that you know relied on the more basic things and and that was one of the more basic songs. Yeah, and I like that about that song. Yeah, I think that was sort of like keeping us in our like, you know, being true to who we were, harkening back to that as we continued to move forward. And it had, and it was more orchestrated than the original version of it, but it still had that, you know, that older, more sparse thing. The next song, "Bells Will Ring," that's the the other end of the spectrum where yeah, we were not supposed to be. Bells will ring is my favorite song on Super Hawaii. Many a mixtapes that I've made have included this song. In both arrangement and execution, it really is kind of a perfect little pop song. It was the first song I heard from Kincaid. I can remember the first time I heard it. I was on a computer in my high school journalism class, and man, when that horn came in at the beginning, I thought these guys get it. I remember. At the time, I was, you know, a big proponent of the like adding too much stuff maybe to songs,、um, and being just like, let's make it crazy. And so, any of the songs that did that, like the end of "Bells Will Ring," like once everything starts going and the stylophone comes in. Um, like the, there's something that was just so like exciting and euphoric about that.、Um, yeah, it was really cool. Was Bell and Sebastian out at this point yet or not? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was a huge influence. I think、right? the stylophone and came from Bell and Sebastian, right, Sean? Yeah, the yeah, yeah, definitely. That、That's、was、it. when they were hard to find too. Like you had to try to find that. It's like a weird little hand synthesizer that like has a metal. I mean, it's like has a metal strip that's divided like the keyboard, so you can see where the notes are, but it's not an actual keyboard. And then you have like the wired pen that has a metal tip that's stuck to it, and you touch that to each note.、Um, but yeah, I mean, that song to me was like a really exciting example of that. And I think the 
that actually that song is a really good mix of those two styles of Kincaid too, because the time change stuff and like the weird slow down, speed up stuff, I think was probably influenced by like promise ring and bands we were playing with like that. But Greg, do you like, that's one that's pretty much about the theme, right? Like, oh yeah. I mean, that one's straight that, up about, yeah. It's about a town that, uh, yeah, where I think I remember like that there is going to be a, a bells to sound, uh, to, uh, to, uh, warn the town and that people are going to tie their homes together yeah, like, like at the end of Gilligan's Island, <laughs> everything came to bad. We were so into bad TV shows. I mean, not bad. Uh, do do you remember the end of Gilligan's Island where they like they tie everything together and it floats? <laughs> so like that's, that's where the we're gonna make the city float comes from. Um, and so, but it's a town where the the bells don't go off, and then the whole town dies. Oh, yeah, but bells were ringing though. That that. That that song was yeah, that was a real personal favorite. I remember being like really excited anytime we were gonna play that. Bells Will Ring for me really starts the sweet spot of this record. And following it is the track Benjamin, which is equally as wonderful. Probably my favorite song on the record because it just has this vibe of like some other band that's real cool. Sounds good. Like, I just know. I can't quite put my finger on it. <laughs> it sounds like, it's the only one that sounds like a good band. Is that what you're saying? You mean the song we used to call the Master Song? Would you? Yeah. Is that, yeah. Is that what you're getting at, maybe? Um, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. But no, that yeah, was so- a real crowd favorite, too, right? Like yeah, I, that and Eleanor I, Roosevelt, which was it was an easy one album, to play, right? yeah, and yeah, um, I, I still like that song. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I wrote that song while um, my wife was in a GIS class, a graph, uh, geographical information system class, at way you know probably 1992 or something like that, and I had to just sit there and I was on a computer that had internet, and somehow I ended up on. Um, <laughs> reading Benjamin Franklin's Last Will and Testament. Because this so is just, what people did when the internet first came out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, when you go look at that. <laughs> and that's why I put protection on our, my, my home router for my children so they don't make the same mistake. But, um, you know, so, yeah, I just, I, I just tried to take lines from that, uh, his Last Will and Testament, and make it into a song. And you made cool, like, there was some cool, weird, like, history tidbits wrapped up in that. Yeah, so there's, yeah, that that wasn't straight from, you know, his life. He didn't, like, reference his candle making, or the 
Daylight savings time references, you know. And what was the thing about, like, the books and leaving the books yeah. to somebody? Or, yeah. He'd be talking about, like, leaving books to his different kids in different locations. And yeah. I don't, I, we almost called it, um, you might not know this, it was a worse name, I think called, like, 12 pounds Sterling, because everything yeah, was about giving, like, yeah, it's terrible. So I like the recording of Benjamin. That's, uh, to me, that sounds, um, like, fuller than a lot of this stuff we did i i love ryan's drums in the beginning of it i don't think i ever wasn't nervous when i played that song i and i will say this this is an opportune moment to bring up the fact that when when we started talking about kincaid and greg couldn't remember whether kindercore or kincaid came first and then we like it was almost an afterthought that there had been a previous incarnation it's funny because to me even to the end like even now i think of myself as like the new drummer in kincaid <laughs> like like i always i mean it's just i don't know why but i mean <laughs> i know that's ridiculous but to me it's like oh yeah no 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 i mean like yeah i came in the band like later on they were already a band Time Machine is another upbeat number with a new wave slash jangle pop vibe and is tastefully decorated with trumpet, stylophone, and Moog synthesizer. You guys got to explain the lyrics from Wisconsin too, right? Because Time Machine means something different, and I don't think anyone except for you guys knew that. Um, it's a yeah, it's it's basically an ATM in Wisconsin, um, and that's what people refer to it. But then we ended up writing a miscellaneous lines about technology taking <clears throat> over everything, and it has one of my favorite lines that Dan came up with. Do you remember your line in that, Dan? New machines don't need calibration. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, new yeah. machines don't need calibration. That is a very Dan line. You know? Yeah, it's also incorrect. As someone who runs a factory, I'd like to point out, not correct. Yeah, it's it's actually that's dangerously misleading. Um, <laughs> if we only had a time machine to go back, and I think I just remember lyrics. being really, really. Uh, I thought it was really. I don't know why. I just thought it was really funny that that was what you guys called an ATM machine. Yeah, it's kind of like if we had a song where you guys talked about bagels, which is what they called bagels. Well, and like more, I would have laughed every time. Even more disturbing if we talked about bubblers, which are water fountains, right? So yeah, that would so, have like, been when disturbing. We, when, Greg, when Greg and I first moved down here, I think we went through the same, like you know, uh, horrible encounters with people where we first asked for a time machine, we were looking for an ATM. And we asked for a bubbler when we were looking for a water fountain. <laughs> People thought we were insane, I'm sure. I like to imagine a world where you're looking for a water fountain. 
Uh, I, I was very poor <laughs> and dehydrated. Someone. You were looking with such urgency that you asked someone. <laughs> <laughs> Please, sir. Yeah. A drink <laughs> from a bubbler. <laughs> or some money from a time machine. <laughs> that is a good song, though. That that I really did like that song. That was a, It reminded me of California 2012. I like singing it live because all I had to do was say, time machine, time machine, time machine, time machine. <laughs> Got a new wave vibe. <laughs> Probably because <laughs> of the mode part at the, the beginning, right? Yeah, that mode part's awesome. Oh yeah, man. Day Parade, which follows Time Machine, is another track with lyrics specific to Wisconsin. And like plot number 36, a version of this song originally appeared on Kincaid's first 7-inch. Alright, so Holland Day Parade, <clears throat> I, I, this is another Wisconsin reference. My family uh, came from uh, Cedar Grove, Wisconsin, and it was a little town where everyone was originally from Holland, and every year they'd have a festival, uh, and they'd have a parade, and I've I really didn't like the parade, um, <laughs> but 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 I had a lot of good memories from that time period. <laughs> Who's laughing at me, Brian? I just think it's like funny because that song sounds like the most. Okay, that song to me sounds like the one song where it's like unequivocally not like depressing or upset. And then the fact that you were just like, yeah, no, I didn't like that parade, just. <laughs> Well, it had um, a bunch of bagpipe players, which I don't take to be sure. particularly Dutch, you know. And uh, yeah, but I hated bagpipes, and that's what I remembered about it. But that's <laughs> <laughs> the Scots ruined the holiday parade. And, but but I really did like the whole event around the parade, and it's it's basically about the memories of kind of me growing up and in my grandma who lived in that town and. Um, you know, it's just a very specific culture. Um, I reference uh, an Ole Bolin, uh in that most people have no idea what I'm talking about, and it's basically like a Dutch pastry. Um, I've had a lot of people, not really, nobody really asks me about anything. <laughs> I've had one, maybe one person ask me about what it was. So This is another example of things like when I, I don't know, I'm always the person that's like, oh, you're from, especially before the internet, like you're from a different place. What are the weird things? So when you guys are talking about cheese curds and things like that, like beyond mispronouncing bagel, like it was like, whoa, what is this? And then Oli Bellin, like all those things. I just always thought it was really fun when I joined the band, like playing those songs and being like, wow, this is some weird shit. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The other, the other uh, delicacy I mentioned in there was a, a worsty brugen. And <laughs> oh, yeah. what, what was that? Uh, it's like a pig in the blanket. It's really greasy um, mm. with like sausage, and it's it's good. It's um, 
but yeah, the, and yeah. they actually did have the world's largest uh, at that at that festival. So that's, really, <laughs> that's what that was. About. How big was it? Uh, it had to be like eighteen inches. Wow. No. I don't know how, how much did you have to get out of the time machine for that one? Uh, yeah, it was uh, at least two, $2. Yeah, so it was crazy. $2. You also lived in a place where you could get $2 out of an ATM. Exactly, yeah. I think I will say this about doing Holiday Parade again. I don't know if this is true or not, but I seem to remember, like, that Greg or maybe all of us like weren't 100% happy with the original version of it. And I think we felt like since cool jets baby had been on the first record, it was like, Oh, it would be nice to bring that full circle too. I think I'll interject one thing. This is like a, 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 I wouldn't say fan favorite. I don't know that we have fans, but this is a crowd favorite. People like this one live, right? That's why another reason I think we did it again. Yeah. 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 And not everybody had the, yeah, we, you know, it's convenient to have CDs and, you know, not everyone. Has yeah, that. that's a good point that I don't really. Yeah, I forget that now. Like it was. Yeah. Like people didn't have that song because they didn't have a way to listen to it. Right. And we can you kind of just share it over the Internet easily. Right. Following Holland Day Parade is Semicircle. The lyrical themes of childhood melancholy are greatly expressed through the songs Slow Tempo and Mournful Horns. Like a lot of our our, our earlier stuff, that, um, this was an earlier it, song, right? And it's totally an earlier song, but a lot of our things had to do with childhood. Um, you which know, is where Kindercore came from. Which is where Kindercore came from, absolutely. And, um, so yeah, it was it was a song about just like you know the idea of someone in kinder a girl in kindergarten moving away, never seeing him again, and wondering what happened to him. I think it has one of my favorite lyrics you ever wrote, which is when you say when you're talking about like thinking about them now, and you say, "I hope your dad's new job is great." <laughs> <laughs> like your dad's probably dead at this point. <laughs> so yeah, I when I listened to the record the other day, I was like, because at the time I was young, so I don't know whatever happens to dads. But when I heard that now, I was like, "Oh, her dad's totally dead now." Like, <laughs> you're like, oh, your dad's new job is great. He got when you were in kindergarten. We're now forty. Um, that should be the sequel. Yeah, yeah. So. I I don't know. That's how, I remember. You know, we haven't really talked about Pat a whole lot, but I remember the bass part on that song. Um, when I feel, I don't know why that song didn't end up on Good Citizen, but I feel like we were playing it at the time. Mm-hmm. I feel, I feel like it wasn't that even a Kincaid song before I was in the band, I think. I want to say it was. Pat's bass line on that song, like, it's very, like, long and slow and, like, I don't know, there was something about, and it was, it may be just that I had this early connection with that being one of the first songs I learned, um, 
but yeah, that that song always had kind of a a special weird melancholy place, and then the lyrics. I I always thought that that the lyrics to that were very clever and charming. So well done, Greg. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> once again returns to the flooding of the earth concept with the song there's an ocean this is another favorite of mine because it, it, it has a lot of the like it, it sticks to the lyrical uh conceit of the whole thing and then it has a, a lot of that instrumentation but i really the lyrics to this song were really fun to me it was a whole town singing about the fact that they were that that people were were dead and they were <laughs> they were on vacation like that was kind of amazing right yeah that's yeah all their friends are dead they're you right know, so. i mean it was but they sounded so fun like i mean that was a, to me singing back up on these songs i mean i can only imagine what it would have been like to you but playing these songs for an audience and having people like being bouncing along being happy or whatever and we're all seeing these happy parts about people being dead it was it was always just kind of funny and fun for me, the sweet spot of There's an Ocean is the organ part towards the end, which I think really highlights Rawls' musicianship and his importance to the overall sound of Super Hawaii. Yamaha organ, right, John? Yeah. Yeah. Probably carried that uh, organ into Dan's bedroom. <laughs> uh, it was a heavy organ. I actually sold it like uh, a couple of years ago because I was moving oh, you had it back to Atlanta recently? and I had to sell it because it was so heavy I couldn't bring it. That was one of the so first... Much. That was one of the first 60s organs I ever, like, encountered and led to a lifelong obsession with Farfisas and stuff like that. Like, that organ was amazing. Yeah, it was cool. It, it inspired the the part at the end. That, yeah. That crucial part that ties the whole album together. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, if we haven't mentioned it already, Sean was by far the best musician in the band. In oh, the yeah. No. And that, I mean, that's yeah. what I was getting at when I said we just threw stuff at him and it was like, hey, here's a banjo, play a part on this, you know, or here's this, do this, and he just would do it. So yeah. That was also kind of part of the culture in Athens at the time, too, right? I mean, absolutely. we all, we all kind of played everything for at least eight bars, right? Like, we each pretty much played the thing we played, but I mean, like, Sean, that was, he was our, that guy for us, right? He was our, our auxiliary player, yeah. yeah. Thanks, Sean. Did you did you ever play guitar with us, uh, like, uh, at all? 
I feel like no, you man, there are already two expert guitar players in the band. <laughs> I don't have a demo background. That <laughs> much. I'm sure you played guitar on there somewhere. You probably played a part I couldn't play. It probably was one on on one of our non emo songs. So yeah, probably. He doesn't have that emo background, you know. He can't do that stuff. That that organ part is really great, I, and I think it That's does a, have a twelve string, right? You're you're right. That is a twelve string guitar at the end. So I don't remember who played it. Probably Sean. long has it been with its sugary sweet melody and slow-picked banjo sounds like it could have easily appeared on some lost gems of the 60s compilation it would later go on to appear in the 2003 film my boss's daughter i quit my do- job at domino's because of this song <laughs> <laughs> I, I had too much money and i didn't need it to work anymore <laughs> All of the time that I spent doing music, though, this this is the one song. Like, this song was licensed, and it was in a movie. Well, I don't know how we, how we got it. I mean, we got it through some with something with Kindercore that somebody was pitching our stuff to movies. But it was in The uh, the Boss's Daughter, is that or My Boss's Daughter. Which one was it? Yeah, My Boss's Daughter. I mean, it was, so it was in this movie, and I guess the movie was really popular somewhere in Eastern Europe for a long time. It was France. Um, it was France? Yeah, that was all from France. Oh, okay. And so, I mean, I didn't get to quit a do- job at Domino's. I mean, I got about like $100 a year, but I don't know if I filled out my paperwork right because Sean sounds like he got more than me. But, um, no. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I just remember that song. Like, I mean, that, okay, so that song was really great musically. I really enjoyed that song. That was another one along with Keskase and Solid Jackson. I really had a fun time playing the drums on that song because it was the first it was one of the songs that i was doing this thing that i did a lot where i hit the the floor tom because i didn't use a rack tom and so it was like during the mix of everything i would go to that and it was just a really fun part to play i really remember liking it and uh and it was it was just a cool tight recording everything seemed to come out really well and then that has that really cool banjo part on it that like Ever, I think ever since I saw uh, Kermit play the Rainbow Connection when I was like two years old, I've never been not a sucker for like a slow banjo part like that. And so that really like, yeah, that's a that's a solid favorite of mine. If I remember correctly, this is one of the songs that was actually finished really quickly, both writing and I feel like I we wrote it in the, like a day, recorded it in a day and um, maybe added some extra parts later, like the banjo. But um 
Yeah, it was really quick, which, which, which I liked, you know. That movie that it was in, it was, um, I remember, I don't know who told me, it might have been you, Sean, uh, but I remember hearing that it was going to be in a movie, and I was like, not, you know, you believe it when you see it, and, you know, <laughs> we, we, and it was a, such a bad movie that it kept you getting delayed. Like, this movie is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it, like Ashton Kutcher was like, <laughs> like trying to like sue to not have it released. Yeah, so like I remember hearing about this song, and I thought it was Benjamin that it was going to be. Someone told me that it was going to be that. And, Did you uh, think it was going to be in a biopic about Benjamin Franklin? I thought it was. I thought it'd be you know the lead, but uh, yeah, it was not. Yeah, it was a theme song. Uh, but so I remember like um, going to the movie theater, and I was like daydreaming about going to the movie theater, and <laughs> and, and thinking I would might stand up and say this is my song, you know, something like that. And it was such a bad movie that I was the only person in the theater and I could have done that and it not disturbed anybody. You didn't even want to though, right? You're like, I don't even I, claim this in front of myself. I, I, uh, not at the moment. No, it wasn't a very good movie. People in France liked it, I guess. Right. I, I, there's the, the interesting thing about that, like the life lesson about that, um, movie was i always used to tell myself writing songs if people could just hear my music <laughs> something something's gonna happen and then it's like oh yeah millions of people heard your song you're good you're, you know go on with your your belly job <laughs> oh oh so you were like man when they hear the song like everything's gonna change like in the theater like it was gonna be like okay life's different now yeah, like they'd be yeah. waiting for the credits to see who sure. wrote that <laughs> and song. And then they'd turn around and look at you and they'd be like, wait, you're that guy. Exactly. Yeah. Didn't didn't work out that way. So. That's not well, they, one thing we can talk about here is it was weird because when they listed that song, we all got listed as songwriters. Well, that's because we made that deal. We all agreed that we were going to do that because we had seen a bunch of other bands uh, like go through that as a very public fight and inner band problem. Oh, no, and no, I think what I mean is in the credits, remember all of our names were actually listed. Kind of cool to have our names. Oh yeah, that was cool. That was fun. Got to play drums in a movie, a bad movie, but a movie. Alaska is a beautiful number highlighted by Rawls accordion playing and vibraphones provided by Josh McKay, who at the time played in the Athens band Matcha, and currently is the basis for the wonderful Atlanta band Deer Hunter. But as the track winds down, it is harmonic that shines, both on trumpet and slide guitar. The instrumentation lends an almost old-world feel to the song, and it does a very nice job of concluding Super Hawaii. I don't know why, but I always thought this was like a very, was very much a Greg song. Like this was felt like a personal song for some reason. 
I don't know why. Listen to this real quick. So remember <laughs> the song because the song that was so personal, you don't even. Remember it was real. Hum me a bar here. Hum me a. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one you played the Sharpie solo on, though. Remember? Oh yeah, I, I yes, I think that does make a good closing. So yeah, that slide, that slide-ish guitar thing is where I just use a sharpie on, and I, I ended up doing that on a couple different songs later. But uh, I don't know, I, I I was proud of that. So yeah, no, that sharpie came out really well. That was great. And another thing about that song, I think it's that song where it's like I, I recorded two sets of lyrics that were oh. different, and then I was like, you know, I wasn't much for editing, and I was just like, they, they both sound good together, and so I just left them both both tracks in, so they were never intended. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, the, there's like backup that. vocals that weren't ever intended to be backup vocals. <laughs> But you were just like, okay. Yeah, just wow. leave more tracks yeah. in, you know? I like uh, them. Hey, yeah, that's cool. I like the trumpet at the end. That's, that's great. That's the trumpet moment it's on the out. record. I think yeah. it's actually almost in tune on that record. <laughs> got the mash, the mash feeling to it. Oh, yes. It's almost five minutes long. I'll say I don't know how yeah. long that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a very, very long one. Um, that is, it is, it is like the, it's the slow song on the record, right? Like it's like the long slow song on the record. Yes. I thought we got yeah. a lot of fights about that where I said no, no, no. But yeah, it's. Like, I have a feeling. Yeah. I seem to remember a little about that. Like I feel like. Dan and I were probably very much in our phase of like kindercore and being like, no, like short songs, like, come on, like, let's just do this. Boom, boom, boom. And like, that was like the one long song. And maybe that's why I felt like it was personal to you because it was like, you wanted to have that long slow song and it's a great song. It's just that. It's a whole four minutes and 50 seconds. Yeah. It's, so. it's like 10 fucking minutes. It's like Inagata DeVita for the Indian <laughs> The album art was designed by Lewis, and aesthetically, it's befitting the sound of the record, taking its cue from record covers of the 60s, much like the album art on records by Herb Alpert or Otis Redding's Otis Blue. Super Hawaii's cover image is a vintage photograph of a woman at the beach posing next to a motorcycle. I was just doing all the design for Kindercore stuff at the time. But I mean, it was just, it was a long, it was one in a long series of situations where I just found like an old Life magazine or something like that. I can't remember. Does anyone remember what it was from specifically? I, I remember. Yes. Yes. One of the things that I did a lot at the time, because I was obviously really into like 60s graphic design and music, was to just because I couldn't afford photographers and and models and all those things was just to go find old ads where I knew that like at that point in time no one was going to sue someone over a stock photograph from 50 years ago so I would just like find a cool ad in in like a life magazine I'd go to thrift stores or flea markets and buy a bunch of old magazines and then cut the ads out and scan them and then photoshop out all of the copy and put in 
uh, my own stuff. So I think that that just came from wanting to do something that kind of fit the the whole vibe of what we were doing. Yeah, I just remember I, being shown it and being told this is our album cover, and I said okay. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad you're so I do remember that I did it when we were in New York so like at that point like I don't think like we weren't all around all the time and I think when we had to get pictures to put on it of us it was all just weird random pictures that I found I believe and that's yeah, why there's oh, the, yeah. it was like a collage of old weird pictures yeah and the woman that's scuba diving was another person from a magazine just to like fill out make it look even Kincaid Super Hawaii is released on November 16, 1999, with the members at that moment being in different states as well as devoting time to other musical projects, Kincaid becomes less of a concern. Yeah, I'm, I, I think that's kind of true. I mean, right? Do you guys remember it that way? I mean, I sort of feel like it just was, <clears throat> I think Dan had started I'm the World Trade Center, right? Yeah, but didn't we play South by Southwest or something as Kincaid after this came out? Yeah, I mean, that's what we were talking about earlier, right, yeah, in yeah. 2000 probably. But I think at this point, you had started, in New York, you had started I'm the World Trade Center, and I had started the Four Corners. And so I think we did that South by Southwest show, and then the show from the 40 Watt, that festival, um, I think that might have been that might have been the last Kincaid show because I know both the Four Corners and um, well, Trade Center played that festival too. So yeah, I mean the record sort of it seemed like I guess Greg earlier you said it seemed like the record took a long time to make and I think that's that's true. Like we probably started making it in '98 when we all still lived in town and didn't finish it until later in '99. Right? Does that, does that sound <clears throat> yeah. about right? And I, I mean, I don't think we, like, as we're finishing it, I don't think we're like, oh, we're, even though we weren't living in the same state or whatever, I don't think it was a given that we weren't playing anymore. Like, oh, not never, at all. No, I think we, we never broke up. Do. Right. We're still I a think, band. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's true. We just sort of, we didn't go on hiatus. We didn't break up. We just stopped practicing and playing shows. Does that seem accurate? That yeah, seems accurate. You know, like, yeah. Ryan, Ryan, you and I went on tour, like, with our other bands, like, yeah. almost, like, almost permanently for me. So, I, you know, I was yeah. home a lot. Yeah, no, I mean, at that point, I think that's true. Like, after Expo 2000, Kincaid played that show. Masters uh, um, of the Hemisphere were doing a bunch of stuff, making records, doing tours. But, I, I mean, at I some point, I think Dan and I were both, like, we were doing Kindercore full-time. And uh, See, Jam was on tour all the time with the World Trade Center. The, I think the very last show we played, we we played without uh, Dan and Ryan. Yeah, um, I think I remember that. Is that right, Sean? It was just you. Um, it was Pat on. Was it you on drums or Pat on drums? I played drums, but I I, I want to say that was when they were in New York, and mm. that's why they didn't play. That makes that more show. sense. It was like a house show at my house. Though it would be the last record the group would make together, the members of Kincaid view the experience of making the album, as well as the finished product, as positive. I listened to it the other day, and I will say I'm I'm really proud of it. I I remember it fondly. I remember there being some some internal strife. I mean, Greg bringing up that show. I don't remember that show happening, but I remember there being, and it probably had to do with Dan and I moving to New York and. Uh, and all of these other things, but I just really remember the record fondly and listening to it the other day. 
uh, I was up at the pressing plant and I have, um, I think we pressed 500 copies of it on vinyl and I have one copy left and I, I was listening to it and, uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of it. I think like Greg's songs are amazing. Like the stuff that Sean brought to the band, um, that we didn't have before was like really exciting and, and, uh, and it, I don't know, it meant a lot to me. Uh, and it was a really, a really cool record. So yeah, I really thumbs up, two thumbs up from this guy over here that played drums on it. Yeah. It, it brings back a lot of good memories. Uh, it was, uh, and I feel fortunate that I had that opportunity. Um, you know, I feel like, uh, is that, you know, Dan and everyone else in the band, you know, they're always, uh, more proactive, uh, in being part of the music scene and making things happen. And I feel like I got to go along for the ride and, uh, I got to have a lot of good times and the record captures a lot of that. So I appreciate that guys. And it- I always felt like it was like without your songs, it, none of it could ever have happened. So, you know, yeah. there's some good, good songs, man. Thank you. And good recording. We talked about having a reunion and, uh, and I, I mean, I, I do think that that, that that would really fun. We should get together and play sometime, you know? Yeah. Sorry I'm, to be so <laughs> sincere all of a sudden. I mean, I'm kind of busy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me too. I mean, I don't have time to practice. I was joking. That was my, that's me being it. I'd, I'd love to play again. So. Yeah, that'd be fun. We have a, we got a spot over at the plant, you know, like, uh, we should get together and do something. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to the members of Kincaid for speaking with me about this very special record, and specifically Greg Harmelink for helping set this all up. You can stream Super Hawaii and more from the Kinderport catalog on the various streaming platforms. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. And speaking of Kindercore, if you happen to be an artist that's looking to get a record pressed, I don't think you could do much better than Kindercore Vinyl. You can find them at kindercore.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.